This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. How are you, Slater Crusaders? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, Let's start off with a little school news. What do you say? Eight women were uh, hired by Los Angeles Unified School District as drug counselors and were charged in federal court for fraud. They were charged 50, or excuse me, they did charge, they charged LA Unified $50 million for bogus services. Now, what does bogus mean? They were paid to do drug and alcohol counseling that was never provided to middle and high school students. Now, I don't want to talk about the women themselves because there's more to the story. They're like minimum wage workers. They're not the ones who were pocketing the $50 million. It was the people they were working for. So I don't want to talk about the, the, the women themselves. I want to talk about the bureaucracy because only in a bureaucracy, like a school bureaucracy, can $50 million be paid to people for doing nothing and no one notices. This has been going on for five years. $50 million for five years to pay for something that doesn't exist, like is not happening. That is unreal. $50 million wasted like that. I, I got to get, listen, there is, there is no greater hypocrisy in politics today. And I know this is because there's a lot, there's a lot of hypocrisy, but there is no greater hypocrisy than politicians who defend government run education and then send their kids to a private school like that, that to me, that's the top of all of them. That is outrageous to me. Now, the president's daughters. Okay. I can see sending them to private school for security reasons. Fine. Rahm Emanuel, former White House chief of staff, current mayor of Chicago. His kids go to private school. Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City, $34,000 a year private school. Same with Schwarzenegger when he was governor of California. Tony Villar when he was the mayor of LA. The list goes on and on and on. How about this? The secretary of education. At the Federal Secretary of Education, of Public Education, of Government Education, Arnie Duncan, his kids go to private school. What in the world? How is that possible? How can Arnie Duncan and his wife have a conversation and say, listen, these schools, they're awful. We got to send our kids to a private school. But how will that look? I mean, I don't even care. It, they're so bad. Like, there's, I don't even care what the PR is going to be on this one. We, no way are we sending our kids to public school. But you're the head of all the public schools. I know, but whew, no way is my kid going there. Now, even worse than all that, because I bet there's some people saying, to Slater, you're missing something. You're missing the point. Because these are all politicians. And yeah, security is, is a concern or um, they have a lot of money. You know, Michael Bloomberg, he's all the money. So yeah, of course, rich people are going to send their kids 
to private school. How about this fact? They did research on the number of teachers who send their kids to private school. In Philadelphia, 44% of public school teachers send their own kids to private school. Think about that. <laughs> In Cincinnati, 41% of teachers send their kids to private school. Chicago, it's 39%. San Francisco, it's 34%. Los Angeles, 25% of teachers send their kids to private school. And uh, for all of Los Angeles, like the entire population, it's 16% of parents send their kids to private school. But for teachers in the public school system, 25% of them are like, oh, no, I'm not sending my kids here. <laughs> Think about what that is. Teachers in Los Angeles, I'm sure San Diego, they go to school every day. They go to work every day. They have their own kids and they're thinking, I'm sure as heck not, not letting my kids go to public school. That's amazing. Apply that to anything else. Imagine you are a, um, you're a chef, chef at a restaurant and your family comes to town and they're like, oh, we can't, we can't wait to go to your restaurant. And you say, oh no, I'm not going to feed you that. That's <laughs> the food I make is it's, it's terrible. We're going to go across the street to a different restaurant because Really, what I make is just just garbage. Uh, I watched an episode of Restaurant Impossible a while back. That's one of those shows where you really shouldn't watch because when you watch one, you're hooked into seven. They just, they just go back and back, back, back to back. They're like, oh, I'm hooked now. So I watched an episode a while back, and the host went to the back kitchen. So the, the point of it is Restaurant Impossible is horribly run restaurants, and then the, the guy comes in, the mean chef guy, and uh, he comes in and he whips the restaurant into shape, right? Uh, so the host goes in the back of the kitchen and he had him cook up some different things. And the guy made, I don't know, a grilled cheese sandwich. And it it was foul. And the host took the sandwich and picked it up and held it in front of the cook's face and said, would you eat this? Would you eat this right now? And the guy says, no. Well, then how can you expect anyone else to? Same with politicians in public schools, right? Same with teachers and public schools. Anyway, reason I bring this up is it turns out that Jorge Ramos, the news anchor, from, by the way, you know, everyone's like, oh, Jorge Ramos, he's, a, he's the anchor on Univision, but uh, he's really an activist. Did you see what Gwen Eiffel posted the other day? I got to pull this up. Gwen Eiffel tweet BB. There it is. Ba -ba 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 -ba. She wrote a tweet. So this is a, a piece of propaganda that uh, the White House put out. And I say propaganda because it's patently absurd. Sorry for the sidetrack here, but I'll bring it back around. So the White House sent out this um, little diagram, and it's a bomb, like an old school big black ball of a bomb. And it says, without the deal. Iran resumes production of highly enriched uranium 
no limits on stockpiles and unlimited increase in centrifuges. That's without the deal. And they say there's a 90% chance of a nuclear explosion with that. And then it says, with the deal, no production of highly enriched uranium. Uranium stockpiles reduced by 98% and capped and centrifuges reduced by two-thirds. And the White House expects everyone look at reading that to say, oh, well, <laughs> in that case... Oh gosh, now that you explain it like that, I guess that's uh I guess it's a great deal. Anyway, we've talked all about the Iran deal. The the reason this is in the news is because Gwen Eiffel, the news anchor on uh, PBS, taxpayer funded, she she retweeted it and said, "Take that, BB." In reference to Benjamin Netanyahu, the uh, head of Israel, leader of Israel. She wrote, "Take that, BB." <laughs> Wow. So she's a uh, she's an activist too. Anyway, everyone's giving Jorge Ramos such a hard time for being an activist, like no, like none of the other news anchors, reporters in America are either. I mean, come on, take that, BB. How about that? How about that for a disinterested, dispassionate uh, evaluation of a White House diagram? I mean, <laughs> take that, BB. Anyway, Jorge Ramos, right? The guy from Univision. This is the guy who was deported from Trump's press conference last week or the week before. His kids go to a Miami private school, tuition $30,000 a year. This is important because of the strain, and I think that's a fair word, the strain that immigration naturally puts on a public school system. And whatever other strains there are on the public school system. Ramos wants nothing to do with it. He's going to have his kids go to a school that's walled off. Or I should say walled in from the consequences of the policies that he advocates for. Now, let me just be clear. I have nothing against private school. I'm, I'm already saving for my kids' private school. My kids don't even exist yet. So I have nothing against private school, please. It's the hypocrisy of leaders in our community who fight to to prop up the government-run school system as if it's working, and then they themselves vote with their feet and would never send their kids to a public school. I mean, that's that's all you need to know. That's all you need to... And then, seriously, the the conversation should end here with with all, like, well, how's the public school system doing? Well, I don't know. No politicians send their kids to the public... Not no, but you know what I mean... Here's, here's all the politicians that don't send their kids. I'd like to see a breakdown of our uh, elected leaders on if they send their kids to private school or not. Miles, is there a way we can uh, maybe look that up? Like how, how – it would be gold if the um, guy on the, the, the San Diego school board and also um, the head of the labor unions, if he didn't send his kids to, private, to public school. Like I don't know if that's true or not, but I, we're going to look that up. Because that's all you need to say. Oh, how, how are your schools? Well, <laughs> our mayor doesn't send his kid to public school. The members of the school board don't send their kids to public school. So, I don't know, you tell me. How do you think they are? Or if you're in Philadelphia, well, I don't know. How are the schools doing? Mm, 44% of public school teachers don't send their kids to public school. So, how do you think they're doing? That's all that needs to be said.
Slater Radio on uh, the Tweet Machine, S-L-A-T-E-R, and Radio. Uh, real quick, let me share this real fast. Uh, new report came out the other day. 51% of immigrants, not just illegal immigrants, but 51% of immigrants are on some form of government welfare. So Medicaid, food stamps, school lunches, housing assistance. 51% of immigrants. It's 30% for native-born households. 51% of immigrants. I don't want to get on too whole uh, different sidetrack here, but immigrants in American history have never taken welfare ever because there was no welfare to take. So I'll just end with this. I agree with the 1996 Democratic Party platform. And I don't believe that non-citizens should be eligible for, for any type of welfare or public assistance. They should be the financial responsibility um, of themselves or the people who sponsor them being here. And of course, recipients of private charity, if they'd like. That's the 1996 Democratic Party platform. That's all. I want immigrants who want to live the American dream. I don't want immigrants or native-born people who want to live their life in the dole. And as we've talked about many times before on this show, that's for their own good. I'll make the same argument whether an immigrant or native-born because we can't be living in a country where a majority of a group of people are on welfare. That's just not, that's not good for anyone. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Listen to the Blaze Radio because you care about the world around you. This audience will help pull the world away from the brink of insanity. You're not just looking for the headlines. You want more. When you subscribe to the Blaze TV, you'll have more access to the things you care about, like informative news programs, including Glenn's radio and TV programs, comedies, family-friendly shows, and exclusive documentaries. And best of all, you can watch the Blaze anywhere, on your TV or mobile device, live or on demand. Learn more at theblaze.com slash TV. That's theblaze.com slash TV. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Can I share a story here real quick? This, I, I, wanna, I came across this the other day, talking about education here. Um, and I guess we'll dedicate this to the beginning of the school year for many kids. This was written in a uh, newspaper in Illinois, 1903. 100 years ago. It's cool. When the animals decided to establish schools, they selected a school board consisting of Mr. Elephant, Mr. Kangaroo, and Mr. Monkey. And these fellows held a meeting to agree upon their plans. What shall the animals' children be taught in the animal school? Declared Mr. Monkey. Ah, yes, that is the question, exclaimed Mr. Kangaroo and Mr. Elephant. They should be taught to climb trees said the monkey positively. All my relatives will serve as teachers. Mm, no, 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 shouted the other two in chorus. That will never do. They should be taught how to jump, 
cried the kangaroo. All of my relatives will be glad to teach them. No, yelled the other two, that will never do. They should be taught to look wise, said the elephant. I don't know why the elephant looking wise, I don't know where that came, but you know what? All of my relatives will act as teachers. No, indeed, howled the other two together. That will never do. Well, what will do? They asked, looking at each other. Teach them to climb, said the monkey. Teach them to jump, said the kangaroo. Teach them to look wise, said Mr. Elephant. And so it was that none of them would yield. And when they saw that there was no chance to agree, they all became angry and decided not to have any animal schools at all. Someone expanded on that. That was 1903. So someone took that, expanded on it. This is from the Boston Herald. This was published in 1946. Same idea. There it is. One time the animals had a school. The curriculum consisted of running, climbing, flying, and swimming. And all the animals took all the subjects. The duck was good in swimming. Better, in fact, than, than his instructor. And he made passing grades in flying, but he was practically hopeless in running. And because he was so low in this subject, he was made to stay after school and drop his swimming class in order to practice running. He kept this up until he was only average in swimming. But average was passing, so everybody, uh, so nobody worried about that except the dog. The eagle was considered a problem pupil and was disciplined severely. He beat all others to the top of the tree in the climbing class. But he always used his own way of getting there. The rabbit started at the top of the class and running, but he had a nervous breakdown and had to drop out of school on account of so much makeup work and swimming. The squirrel led the climbing class, but his flying teacher made him fly from the ground up instead of from the top down. And at the end of the year, an, an, an eel, the abnormal eel that could swim well and run, climb, and fly a little was made the valedictorian. So you get the idea. I get this is like 1946 language, but you get the idea. One size fits all education does not work. One size fits all education does not work. One of my favorite stories of the week is the uh, javelin thrower. What do you mean the javelin thrower? Um, I got 60 seconds. Let me do it real quick. Grew up in Kenya. Kenya, national sport is running. Wanted to be going to the, go to the Olympics. As he was growing up, he realized, I'm not good at running. So he and his friends went out back and started throwing sticks just for fun. He realized he was really good at throwing sticks. And he said, I'm going to be a javelin thrower. The problem is there's been 79 Olympic medals from Kenya in track and field. None of them in field. So he started watching YouTube videos on how to throw a javelin. And a couple days ago, he won the world championships in javelin from Kenya. So he wasn't a runner. So we can keep pushing him to run and run and run and run and run and run and run, but he's going to fail. So instead, he said, you know, I'm going to be a javelin thrower. Best in the world. We keep trying to push kids through these round holes, right? Everyone's got to be the same. It's a one-size-fits-all education system. Stop. Just stop already. It's not productive. It's not good for our kids. It's not good for our country. Just stop. And let's allow school choice and some new ideas that will change everything. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
later. Thank you for being here, Slider for Slider. Appreciate it. I want to um, I want to share an example of how government can't help but get involved in the most minuscule aspect of our lives. It's so frustrating. And I know this is a silly story, but just just to confirm <laughs> what, you, what you know uh, from a different angle. Have you ever heard of the Little Free Library? Most people just call it the Little Library. So it's a bit of a movement, I would say. Uh, a simple concept. So it's where you, a book lover, have something the size of a, uh, a mailbox or a bird feeder. Something about that big in your front yard. Sort of along the sidewalk. And inside are books. And neighbors can browse and take a book and leave a book if they'd like. And that's it. That's it's just a little neighborhood mini little library. So a 76-year-old man in Sherman Oaks says his little library, quote, turned strangers into friends and sometimes impersonal neighborhood into a community. He said he knew he was onto something when a nine-year-old boy knocked on his door one morning to tell him how much he liked the little library in his front yard. And this man said he met more neighbors in the first three weeks of his little library than he had in the previous 30 years of living in that same house. So I looked at it here in San Diego. Um, there's maybe a hundred. This is some website, littlefreelibrary.something, I don't know. And uh, you can see all around where the, uh, your local little libraries are. And there's like a hundred of them here. And, and every, everyone has a little pin, and you scroll over it, and then people post a picture of their little library and what it looks like. And there's one in my old apartment. There's one right down the street from where, where I used to live. It's a nice thing, right? Fun way to uh, meet a neighbor. All right, you stop, chat about a book you read, chat about a book you dropped off. What the heck, right? It's a good thing, as Martha Stewart would have said. Enter the government. Here to help, of course. A town in Kansas, two people complained about a little free library. They deemed it an illegal detached structure. And the city fined the homeowner. An illegal detached structure. All throughout Los Angeles, they're cracking down too. Here's the LA Times. Crime, homelessness, crumbling, crumbling infrastructure are still a problem in almost every part of America. But two cities have recently cracked down on one of the country's biggest problems. Small community libraries where residents can share books. One little library at a man's house in Los Angeles, the city told him uh, he had to remove it, right? So it turns out there's a tree in front of this man's house. It's on city property. And the roots are lifting up the sidewalk, which is a major hazard. L.A. spends millions of dollars a year on trip and fall settlements from people walking down the sidewalk and, and uh, the trees, you know, the roots lift the sidewalk up and there's a, uh, you know, it's like it lifts up an inch, you trip, fall, break something, sue the city. Millions of dollars a year. A year. Tree trimming in L.A. is on a 45-year cycle. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so they'll trim, they'll trim a tree, and then they'll come back 45 years later. Okay, that so that's really. But put up a lending library, and the city's at your door in a jiffy. How how is that possible? 
Now, Los Angeles said, you can keep your little library if you get a permit and the city's art fund will pay for people to monitor it. <laughs> right. So, so you have to apply. So you got to get a permit and then you got to apply to the city's art fund in order to have a layer of bureaucracy on top of your and all the little libraries. That's my favorite part of the. So, so just for review, we have created a society. And it just happened like that. We've created a society where you must obtain prior permission from the government before freely sharing books with your neighbors. And the government's solution to this is to tap into already depleted public arts funding to pay for a needless layer of bureaucracy on a thing that's already being done for free. There you have it. That's the, that's the country we're living in right now. Now I know there's someone listening like, oh, Slater, we don't want people building blah, 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 blah. Listen, no one wants an oil refinery next to a daycare. Okay? And we don't want you know, a nuclear power plant built on a fault line. So we're, we're all good with zoning regulations. I get it. But for crying out loud. I'll wrap up here. And I don't, I don't, don't mean to be dramatic here. But Alexis de Tocqueville, 1840, he wrote Democracy in America. You know it well. He wrote about how America was unique to the world because we created what he called associations. We had all these associations, just free groups of people freely joining each other and joining groups with each other for a common cause. And this is what he said. He said, the Americans make associations to give entertainment, to found seminaries, to build inns, to construct churches, to send missionaries. They found hospitals, prisons, and schools. So he was just, uh, he was in awe at how the American people would just come up with an idea. Someone would come up with an idea and then do it. And then other people join in and they'd do it together. Like it was a crazy concept to Europe. And he listed examples. Now I left one out. Uh, de Tocqueville said that in America, they also make associations to diffuse books. So that was de Tocqueville, 100, 160, 170 years ago, saying, wow, look at these Americans. They, they get together and they, they share books with each other. And that was a, that was a noticeable thing. And now we're trying to do the same thing and rebuked. Now, grand scheme of things, I get it, not important. But you can see the detail of control. You know, last week we talked about the uh, new Department of Energy regulations on dishwashers. Forcing dishwashers to go from, what was it, like 5.7 gallons per cycle to 3.1 gallons per cycle. And the dishwashing industry said, all right, we can do that, but we're going to have to increase the power of the jets, like the streams, so that we can, you know, clean the dishes. And uh, the Department of Energy said, oh, sorry, yeah, you're also going to have to use less energy, so you can't use more high-power streams either. And the dishwasher companies said, well... Now people are just going to have to run the dishwasher twice. So it's going to use more water and more energy than before. 
Department of Energy doesn't care. And they say, the Department of Energy says that this will increase the cost of dishwashers by $99. They, they say it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to the industry. Which, of course, these companies will pay for by laying people off and outsourcing and cutting hours and all the rest. And then people will look around and be like, well, what happened? We chatted about that last week. Now, there's also new Department of Energy regulations on refrigerators and freezers and ceiling fans and hair dryers and toasters and microwaves and every other appliance that you can imagine. And my point is, if everything else was solved, then yeah, you know what? We can have a conversation with the federal government about my dishwasher. But on the priority list, there has to be a few things above it, right? It's got to be. Same with local governments. How about, how about you guys replace our 100-year-old pipes before you start tearing down what is essentially a bird feeder full of books next to my mailbox? There's a little, some priorities here. You deal with your own business, and then you can mess around with our little libraries that a couple people want to put on their front yards for the love of Pete. I think the rallying cry should be, <laughs> what if, <laughs> I may start a little library. I mean, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start a little library. I'm going to put it in my front yard. I'm going to put a sign above it. And it's going to say, neighbors, come pick up a book. Government, get off my lawn. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. And again, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, I want to play this clip here from Shark Tank. Uh, Shark Tank, the reality show. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we've talked about this. I, I'm mad at everyone I know. So, serious, I, I was there was a day or two when I was mad at everyone after I saw my first episode of Shark Tank. Because it's been on for a couple of years, and, and I've never seen it. And I was mad at everyone because no one told me how awesome Shark Tank is. I, not a single person never came up in conversation. No one was like, hey, Slater, I really think you would like the show Shark Tank. You should watch it. No one thought of me when they watched Shark Tank. And I, I was upset by that. I got over it. But I love it so good. My wife loves it too, so it's fun to watch together. Anyway, um, reality show, if you don't know it, uh, inventors, entrepreneurs come in front of these four super rich uh, entrepreneurs, or not entrepreneurs, I I guess they are entrepreneurs, but venture capitalists, there you go, thank you, Um, and ask for money. (laughs) So, And it's great, it's so much fun. So there was one episode where there was an 18-year-old girl. When she was 11, she started making her own skincare lotions. She has eczema. And because she spent so much time at the dermatologist, she knew more than most people about the ingredients inside different skin lotions and stuff like that. So she made her own (laughs) when she was 11. So here she is. She's 18 years old, 
and she's in front of the Sharks pitching her company. The company's called, and it's still around, they're doing great. It's called Simple Sugars. But I just want to play this one exchange right here. We're perfectly allowed to say that. It is one of the hardest things you could do with your life, starting a business, being oh, an yes. entrepreneur. What inspired you to start your own business? When I was much younger, my mom went on maternity leave with my youngest brother. And while she was away on maternity leave, she got passed over for a promised promotion. At that point, I was very discouraged, especially as a woman, about one day going into the corporate world. So from that point on, I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur so I could be responsible for my own success. I was the same way. I didn't want to be under control of somebody else. I wanted to lead my own destiny. Yes. And I am super impressed that you are doing what you're doing. We can stop. I, I, so, like, how good is that answer? How amazing is that? I, I think of this girl, woman, with the whole war on woman narrative, which is going to ramp up here. But you, you, you ain't seen nothing yet on the <laughs> the war on women narrative. Two groups who are connected to Hillary said they're going to spend twenty million dollars in battleground states talking about women's issues. Whatever that even means, right? Uh, I, I'll never understand. I don't want to get on a side right here, but I'll never understand women's issues. I asked my wife. I said, I said, I said, wife, what's a what's a woman's issue? <laughs> and and she's like, I don't know. I said, well, what, you're a woman, so what are the most important issues to you? And she said, education, uh, the economy, and national security. I said, okay, those are women's issues. Perfect. There are also men issues. They're they're just things that are important, I think. But they're going to talk. Hillary's going to talk about the non-existent gender pay gap. Quick sidebar: in San Diego, young, childless, unmarried women make a dollar fifteen for every dollar that a young, childless, unmarried man makes. So there's a gender pay gap for you right there, Hillary. Um, but the non-existent gender pay gap and then women's health care and maternity leave. Those are going to be the, the three things. So here's this 18-year-old girl. And she says, when I, was, when I was younger, I said, look, look at what this company did to my mom. So I'm going to go lobby for a law to be passed. That's not what she said. <laughs> she didn't say, oh, man, look what happened to my mom. I'm going to go vote for Hillary Clinton. Because of this injustice to my mom. Well, she said, this happened to my mom. So I'm going to live my life so that this will never happen to me. So that I can be in control of my own destiny. I wish people had more of that reaction. Right, I, I wish I wish people looked at that and said, "Man, that's an injustice." I'm gonna make sure it never happens again. As opposed to always running to the government for help. On my local show the other day, we talked to a business owner. Forty years, this restaurant's been in business. It's the daughter of the the guy, the, 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 her dad, who founded it. And I said, how'd your dad, why'd your dad start this restaurant? And he said, oh, when he came from Italy, little boy, he grew up. And he, he said, I can do that. Meaning open a restaurant. I can do that. So we did. 
I want more of that. Instead of people being victims and saying it can't be done, I want people to say, I can do that. So we made this country great. 1-888-900-3393. Blades. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Um, can I please ask you to um, follow us on the tweet machine? I haven't done that in a while, right? Slater Radio on Twitter. And uh, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We have some really great videos that we're going to be releasing soon. Miles has been working uh, extra time on these videos. We have some videos about of uh, people sharing their abortion stories in light of the Planned Parenthood videos. So we made these videos that they're not for lawmakers. They're not for pro-life people. They're for girls and women and guys who are in a, in a uh, crisis pregnancy. 85% of women who have had an abortion, and you know, take the stat for what it is, but 85% of women who have had an abortion say they felt like there was no other option. And that's not true. And, and I'm guessing a lot of those girls and, and women feel like they're alone and feel like they're the only one who knows what it's like or who've ever been like through this or whatever. So we made these videos with, uh, what do we have, eight people who each have a different angle of abortion and their abortion story. Um, so we did this so we can try to relate to and connect with as many people as possible um, on the YouTube. So uh, we're going to release those next week. And we're going to put them on our Facebook page and YouTube, of course, but we're going to put them first on Facebook. So you can just search for the Mike Slater Show on the Facebook. So please like us there and we can uh, stay in touch uh, all day long. Uh, President gave a speech in Alaska. First of all, I like Glenn Beck's analysis that this whole renaming Mount McKinley thing uh, it's, it's just a distraction for what he's really doing up there. I think I've mentioned on the show, uh, what's it called? Fooled Us? The show Fooled Us. Have you ever seen it? I think it's Friday nights. Penn and Teller. I love Penn and Teller. So the show, real quick, they have a magician perform a trick in front of Penn and Teller. And then Penn and Teller, they're watching, and they have to try and figure out how he did it, how the magician did it. 90% of the time, they know it. And they'll, it goes like this. They'll say, so Charlie, when you were asking the audience member to do jumping jacks, did you hand that we weren't supposed to see? And the magician's like, yes, <laughs> you got me. Yeah. Penn and Teller are trained in that context to not be distracted and to look where they're not supposed to look. And they know all the tricks. So when the magician up there says, hey, look, everyone, look at this person doing jumping jacks, Penn and Teller knows, well, I'm not going to look at the person doing jumping jacks. That's a distraction. I'm going to look at where you don't want me to look. So hey, Glenn Beck's analysis was that that's, uh, 
It was just a distraction technique. Renaming Mount McKinley was just, hey, everyone, look over there. Well, I'm going to go over here and do this. So he gave a speech in Alaska. And let me, I'll just go through it real quick here. Um, a quote. He said, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Uh, there will be, because of climate change, of course, reduced sea levels and will leave villages unprotected from floods, floods and storm surges. Some are in imminent danger. Imminent. Some will have to relocate entirely, which, for the record, has been the case since the beginning of time. Like, people have moved. Anyway, Alaska's fire season is now more than a month longer than it was in 1950, which, which, by the way, scientifically proven, was the exact perfect amount of fire length. Did you know that? 1950, scientists have said this, this year, right, 1950 is the year that's just base level. Right? That, that's the perfect amount of fires that we should have in Alaska. The 1950, that's the base. That, that's what we need to achieve. That's ideal, 1950. I'm being sarcastic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, this, this is the biggest thing that frustrates me about the climate change thing is it all assumes that the earth is supposed to be a temperature, right? Like, like what's the ideal temperature? What, te- what temperature is the earth supposed to be? You think you can come up with that? It's impossible. It's a ridiculous figure. So when, when uh, the president says, well, the fire season in Alaska is a month longer than it was in 1950. So who cares? What does that even mean? A month longer than it was? Who says that 1950 was the year that, like, that's the ideal number of or length of the fire season? Like, it's annoying. Anyway, um, thawing permafrost destabilizes the earth on which 100,000 Alaskans live, threatening homes, damaging transportation and energy infrastructure, which could cost billions of dollars to fix. And we will condemn our children to a planet beyond their capacity to repair. Submerged countries. Abandoned cities. This is good. Warmer, more acidic oceans and rivers. And the migration of entire species threatens the livelihoods of indigenous peoples and local economies dependent on fishing and tourism. Entire nations will find themselves under severe, severe problems. More drought, more floods. Rising sea. I love that. More droughts and more floods. So we're going to die of thirst and drowning at the same time. More drought, more flood. I can go on. Listen, in short, the, the, the president's uh, reads like a script from the latest disaster movie starring The Rock where his house slides into the ocean right before it gets engulfed in flames and the people who do make it out alive are sucked into a sinkhole and they have to abandon their cities like it's the zombie apocalypse. And if you do make it out alive, you're going to drown or die of thirst or both. And we all are because it's already too late. Or it was too late. In 2007, it was too late. But now it's too late again. Or something. Can I play a clip here? This is Ted Cruz. Uh, he was in, uh, I think, New Hampshire. A gentleman came up to him and asked him the following question. Lobsters, you're here in a lobster place. They're like moving to colder water in general. Um, Part of that is due to climate change. You uh, believe, do you deny climate change? Well, you know, it's interesting the way that question is written. But, okay, wait, so we can get to that after, that's fine. Um, we got you, I, mean, we I know, people, I know. So. But you also, you voted against the National Endowment for the Oceans, which is designed to protect coastal economies like this one. So my question is, how can you come here 
um, when your voting record basically says you don't care about this community. Well, all right. So we're going to skip ahead here. So so Cruz goes on. Uh, his first answer here is about the economy, and they go back and forth about blah 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 blah. Whatever. And then Cruz eventually, after I think I think we're skipping two minutes here. So two minutes into this conversation, he's like, "All right, enough already." And this is the fun part that happens next. Sir, I told you I'm not going to be cross-examined. So, right, so I'm if, not trying to cross-examine want... you. I just want a yes or no answer. This place is so, 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 yeah. <laughs> let's step back for a second. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just trying I'm not... to get an answer here. Let, let's step back yeah. for a second and look at this with some historical perspective. Okay. 30, 40 years ago, sure. there were a group of political liberals and scientists okay. who said we were facing global cooling. They said we were headed towards a global ice age. Okay. And the solution to global cooling was massive government control of the economy, mm-hmm. the energy sector, and every aspect of our lives. Okay, I'm not into that personally, but okay. yeah. Then, yeah. the data disproved it. That yes. was not in fact correct that we were seeing global mm-hmm. cooling, so that was kind of a problem. Okay. So then, many of these same political liberals, mm-hmm. and many of these same scientists, they then latched onto a new theory. It's called global warming. Correct. And the new theory of global warming, interestingly enough, the solution was the exact same as the solution had been for global cooling. It was massive government control of the economy, of the energy sector, and every aspect of our lives. But then the problem became the data and evidence didn't back up global warming. In particular, if you look at the satellite data, listen, I am the son of two scientists and mathematicians. Yes. It is the essence of science to look to the evidence. Yes. In the last 18 years, there has been no meaningful recorded warming according to the satellite data. So suddenly all these political liberals, the evidence and data didn't back them up. So then the theory changed to a third version. It's just been in the last few years when the theory magically transformed into climate change. And climate change, from the perspective of a political liberal who wants government power, climate change is the perfect pseudoscientific theory. Why is that? Because it can never be disproven. Whether it is hotter or colder, whether it is wetter or drier, the climate is always changing. Now, you asked a question, do I believe in climate change? Of course, from the dawn of time, the climate has been changing. Till the oh, end of time, the climate like, will, will change. Okay. And yet, interestingly enough, the political liberals, yeah, okay. their solution to climate change is exactly the same as it was to global cooling and global warming. Okay. Massive government control of the economy, the energy sector, and our lives. And when you start to see politicians that propose the exact same solution to every problem, regardless of the facts or the data, you start to think these are just politicians that want power over our lives. It's a pretty good answer. <laughs> That's uh, it's pretty much everything right there. I love the kid's response when he says, from the dawn of time and until the end of time. The climate will change. And the kid's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that's, that's true. For the love of Pete, the, the continents all used to be connected. And <laughs> like things change. Ah, the height of arrogance to think that politicians can pass a bill and can change behavior that would change the, change the temperature of the earth and the sea levels. And I was like, oh, it's unbelievable. So anyway, so, so that was Ted Cruz with, with that one kid. Then he turns around. And there's another, uh, like five minutes goes by and he's talking to other people down the line. And there's another young, young lady, uh, a couple feet away, ready to ask another question about lobsters. 
I, <laughs> how many times do you think Ted Cruz has been asked about lobsters? Well, twice in five minutes. I love the intro to this, but the audio is is bad, uh, the video. Uh, so let me just read it real quick. Uh, she says, I'm a recent graduate of the University of New Hampshire. One thing I learned is that the Gulf of Maine is warming. That's causing lobsters to move offshore. This is my favorite part. This is great. I learned that in my university, a public university, that it's caused by climate change. So are you saying that you disagree with what public universities are teaching students? That is a fantastic, that question is unreal. Cruz says what he says back. He says, do I disagree with what public universities are teaching? Absolutely yes. By the way, I'm a law professor at the University of Texas School of Law, so I have been an academic. I will stop there. I got to take a break. I love that question. So you're Senator Cruz, you're disagreeing with what the public universities are teaching students? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. Is there another question there? Because what your professors teach is not gospel. I want to play his answer to uh, to the lady. We'll do that next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. And again, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter, and uh, please search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. You can like us there, stay in touch. Um, I want to wrap up this conversation here with uh, Ted Cruz. So Ted Cruz is in New Hampshire, and a gentleman came up to him, a recent college grad or in college, and he asked him about the lobsters. The lobsters are having to move to colder water because of climate change. And Ted Cruz was nice for a couple minutes and then was like, all right, fine. And then just went into this two-minute mic-dropping uh, speech against this kid, and the kid had nothing nothing bad. So then he walks around a couple minutes later, and then there's another young lady who asks him another question about lobsters. By the way, time is short here, so I was just looking at the clock. Now, guys, is there, if there's a, when there's a day we have nothing to talk about, let's talk about lobsters. Remind me to do that. Um, lobsters have such an interesting history. So lobsters, why don't we just do a quick one? Lobsters used to be peasant food. Did you know that? Oh, lobster. Lo, there were, okay. Do a brief history on lobsters. So in Massachusetts, like Massachusetts Bay Colony era Massachusetts, there would be lobsters that would, would um, wash up on shore two feet high. Like not the lo- like a lobster wasn't two foot. Like lobsters piled two feet high. So if you go to the beach and there's seaweed, you know, all piled up like that, but two feet high of lobsters. There's tons and tons of lobsters. And the colonists would grind them up and use them as fertilizer. 
they would it was discussed William Bradford he was the the governor of the Plymouth plantation in the early 1600s he wrote in his diary that he was embarrassed that other colonists when they arrived could only be fed lobsters isn't that funny that's all they had they're like oh we all we have are lobsters the word lobster comes from the word meaning spider so they're the ocean spiders they they were gross prisoners were given so much lobster think about it today you ask a prisoner what their last meal is and they say lobster. Prisoners back in the day were given so much lobster that there were prison riots because they were so sick of it. They couldn't take it. Way too much lobster. I can't take this lobster anymore. Why are you feeding us this gruel, this slop? I can't take this lobster anymore. It was embarrassing for kids to go to school with lobster meat. You were the poor kid. It's like today's bologna. <laughs> right? Like... Lobster was gross. In right after the Civil War, you could buy a pound of baked beans. Don't even ask why I know this. You could buy a pound of baked beans for fifty cents. Okay. You could buy a pound of lobster for ten cents. Baked beans were significantly more expensive than lobster. Lobster was cat food. Have I made my point that lobster was was a disgusting thing? So you think, well, hold on, how, what, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. How did it become so popular? The railroads. So all the people on the coasts thought that this lobster insect, this ocean insect, was disgusting and gross, and the prisoners were revolting. But then when the railroads were in the middle of the country, people in the middle of the country, country folk, thought that this lobster, like they, they tricked them. The, 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 the coastal folk tricked the, the, the middle of the country folk and tripped, tricked them into thinking it was a delicacy. And they never, they're like, I've never seen this lobster thing. And they're like, oh, it's a delicacy. <laughs> they ate it up. And then during the World War II, lobster was not rationed. So there was plenty to go around. So they were selling a lot of it. And then uh, because they were selling a lot of it, the prices went up and then it became a rich delicacy. Anyhow, there's your short lobster history for the day that I knew you, you woke up wanting to know about lobsters there is anyway point is today lobsters are moving into colder water so a young man questioned ted cruz and then five minutes later a young lady entered and asking the same question about lobsters and in the beginning ted said hey wait a second <laughs> he's thinking i've never been asked about lobsters in my life are you with that guy over there and she's like no no i don't know that who what huh so here's how the interaction ends and uh and then at the end of this video that her first guy saddles right up next to the lady who they who she was like, I have never met that guy in my life. Can I ask you, Katie, is there a single issue on any public policy issue whatsoever that you disagree with the standard liberal position? Probably. Why Can you name one? I would rather not so indoctrinate is a is a strong word right but i don't know when you're telling students something and not telling them to question it uh, yeah that's 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 about right yeah that's, that's indoctrinate 
I love that line. Have you ever questioned, it was kind of tough to hear in the beginning. Have you ever questioned a single liberal premise? She's like, yes. Name one. I'd rather not. <laughs> like when someone says I'd rather not, you know that the answer to the question they gave just before was not true. <laughs> I'd rather not right now. Yeah, okay. Yeah. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Again, Mike Slater, Sean, Facebook. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? Thanks for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter, and you can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Join us there. we got a lot of great videos uh, coming out soon. Miles tomorrow, producer Miles, heading out to um, Horse Ranch. That's not really the story, though. There's more to it than that. It's a special kind of horse ranch. They do some really incredible things there. So uh, we're making a video about that, and we're going to release that soon. So you can get all the latest of uh, these videos we're doing on uh, if you follow us on the Facebook. Search for The Mike Slater Show on the book. Uh, all right, let me cl- be clear here uh, right from the jump because people get defensive about this. Whenever I, I, I talk about cap-and-trade programs or environmentalism or whatever, I get 23 emails from people saying, oh, Slater, do you want dirty water and filthy air and you want to die from asthma? I'm like, no, I don't want any of those things. I'm not talking about companies dumping chemicals into rivers, right? Or or industry belching toxic chemicals into the air. I mean, these, these are reasonable environmental concerns that can be resolved if they haven't already. I'm talking about everything past the law of diminishing returns, which I believe we've met. Law of diminishing returns. Uh, lots of examples. Um, actually, came across a good example the other day. So Sony unveiled their new phones. Have you guys seen the new Sony phones? They're called the, f- I don't know what it's called. I forget. I don't know. I don't know how Sony names their phones. Uh, brand new phone. And, and they're big, big deal. You want to know why big deal these phones? 4K screens. The screens are 4K. So super, 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 super high definition. The highest definition that you can possibly get. 4K. Uh, there's, there's the TVs. When you go into Costco and they have the TVs there, the 4K TV is like, whoa, it's like a whole new ballgame. And they're super expensive. 4K, newest technology. So now we got 4K screens on a phone. So that was the first day. That was yesterday when they were unveiled or two days ago or something. The day after that, after the tech people got to review it, the resounding review is whatever. <laughs> it's like so you really can't tell the difference between a 4K, like a 1080p, 
which is what your iPhone is, I think, and then a 4K. You put them side by side, you can't tell the difference. Yeah, but there, there's a thousand times as many pixels or whatever. And you're like, yeah, but it's a four-inch screen, so it's, it doesn't matter at this point. So it's the law of diminishing returns. Now, if you look at an iPhone 4 and an iPhone 6, huge difference. But you look at an iPhone 6 with this new Sony phone, eh. Law of diminishing returns. The classic example is, let's say you have a garden and you add uh, some fertilizer. It's going to be great for your plants. So you add a little more fertilizer. Oh, that's good too. Now you add a lot more fertilizer. You're like, all right, I'm not going to make any difference than if you added, you know, what you did before, but you can throw more on if you want. And you're just constantly dumping more and more fertilizer on your garden nonstop. And now, now you're going to be hurting your plants, right? So law of diminishing returns. Vitamins are a good example. Sure, take a vitamin. I don't know. There's questions on whether or not vitamins even do anything. But yeah, take a vitamin. Why not? Uh, two, take two. Fine. One vitamin's good. Two's better. Taking 30 vitamins a day, like, that doesn't do any better than, than one vitamin a day. You're just wasting money. So that's law of diminishing returns. I think we've met this with most environmental concerns. Here's why I bring it up. At this point in the, in the game of making a clean, of the, all, this green, all these green programs, environmental programs, at this point in the game, who's winning? So I would definitely have argued the initial environmental stuff, whatever. Who won? The planet. The, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, sure. Okay, we'll give you that. But now that we're dealing with the, like the, the, the details of everything, who's winning now? Not the planet. We're past that point. Brand new study from Berkeley. The title is The Distributional Effects of U.S. Clean Energy Tax Breaks. So I will read this. Uh, it's like two paragraphs. I'll read this. This is from the fine people at the University of California, Berkeley. Here it is. Since 2006, U.S. households have received more than $18 billion in federal income tax credits for, it's a lot of $18 billion, for weatherizing their homes, installing solar panels, buying hybrid and electric vehicles, and other clean energy investments. We use tax return data, blah, 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 blah. We find that these tax expenditures have gone predominantly to higher income Americans. The bottom three income quintiles, so this is the bottom uh, 60%, have received about 10% of all credits, while the top 20%, the richest 20% of people, have received 60% of green energy tax credits. The most extreme is the program aimed at electric vehicles, where we find that the top, in t- the richest 20% have received 90% of all credits. Okay, so these green programs, these are for the rich, and they don't improve the planet, not anymore. Green energy programs at this point are a giant redistribution screen- scheme from the poor and middle class to the rich. Think about that. That's what that is. The government is redistributing money taken from the poor and the middle class, giving it to rich people so that they can buy a new electric car, which in the end doesn't improve the environment anyway because electric cars run on electricity, which comes from coal power plants. So what are we doing? This study right here, this is huge. Every presidential candidate 
needs to be trumpeting this. Not trumping this, trumpeting this. We got to take the, the failures of the environmentalist movement and make this point clear. And say, listen, we, the green programs, you support green programs? Okay, great. Who do you think benefits from them? Uh, uh, the planet. Well, no, they don't. The planet doesn't. What people? What people benefit from these programs? The rich. Why are you, environmentalist, in support of programs that take from the poor and give to the rich? Why, why are you for programs where poor people don't get any benefit out of them? Again, I, this, this keeps coming up on the show, and I love it. The Democratic Party platform, 1996. It says, we don't believe in taxing the poor into poverty. I love that. I love that line. That's so good. We don't believe in taxing the poor into poverty. I'm stealing it. That's mine now. You, you had it in 1996, Democrats. It's mine now. I don't believe in taxing the poor into poverty. Green programs tax the poor into poverty. And not for any uh, uh, environmental benefit. None. Jerry Brown himself. Jerry Brown himself said that the latest cap and trade taxes in California are merely, his words, merely to set an example for the world. But not to actually change anything. And wasn't it the president's... um, what were the latest? Things? Sorry, there's so many of these things. I get confused. There was some environmental thing he did. Oh, what was it? I forget. There was something. I don't know. Executive order or whatever. Or EP, the new EPA regulations maybe. And by their own study, their own admission, will decrease the temperature of the planet by 0. .0. I think it was 0. .07 degrees. <laughs> it's like not even a tenth of a degree. It's draconian ever, not even a tenth of a degree. So it doesn't doesn't affect the planet. Stop. Not to mention the hidden taxes on the poor. Because now everything costs more money than ever before because of uh, green energy programs. We are taxing the poor into poverty. Have you noticed? Have you noticed the price of eggs? Why in California are the price of eggs so high? Tell you why. Prop two. I think it was prop two. Uh, the bill that would require chickens to have more space. That's why. And also the price of feed has increased due to the, the water shortage. Not drought, but water shortage. It's, my point is it's all connected. Every and, and this goes this trickles down, right? All right. So chickens need more room, right? You gotta pay you now we gotta build new cages, whatever. Uh, that increases the price of the eggs. The price of the eggs increases. That means that San Filippo has to pay more money. Uh, for the eggs. So now their menu items go up. People are less likely to buy it. Their uh, profits go down. All that stuff, right? It, it's all connected. And every regulation is a hidden tax. I'll end here. We want a clean planet, of course, but instead of whipping ourselves and nitpicking over the tiniest of details, we need to keep growing our economy while the other countries, which are responsible for almost all the pollution, they need to get their act together. China, Russia, India, those countries, vast majority of the people, and they're, using, they're the ones polluting the most. Meanwhile, we, in the most prosperous country in the world, we should be inventing new technologies to help them. Because really, the only way to get a cleaner environment is through technological improvement. The left thinks we get a cleaner earth by doing less. I believe we get a cleaner earth by growing and progressing and advancing and inventing.
little philosophical difference there. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Radio on Twitter. And uh, you search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We have some really exciting stuff coming up um, in the next couple, well, next week and the next few weeks here on um, on our YouTube page. And, of course, we're going to link to that on our Facebook page. Do I have time to express to share this? Mm. I'll do it real quick. Um We've been making a, a videos of people who are sharing their abortion stories. We have eight, eight people, uh, each with a different angle to the abortion experience. And a couple of the women have never told anyone that they've ever had an abortion before. And their stories are incredible. And these videos are not for lawmakers, right? They're not for pundits. They're not for pro-life people, pro-life groups. They're not for churches. They're for girls and women and guys who are in the middle of a crisis pregnancy and don't know what to do. So we've made videos, a bunch of different videos of, of these stories and we're going to share them and hopefully someone's story connects with a girl who's watching them. You know, I, I don't, you know, we don't care how many views these video gets, <clears throat> these videos get. If each video gets one view and saves one life done. So we're excited. We're going to unveil them next year, next week. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, you can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and we can stay connected through the rest of the week, uh, not just on Saturdays on our Facebook page. I want to wrap up this point on environmentalism. I just whenever we chat about, you know, like the dishwasher regulations, like law of diminishing returns, right? Page uh, One of the pages on a 178-page report from the Department of Education on dishwashers talks about how you have to cut it down from 6 gallons to 3.1 gallons per cycle, all this nonsense. Like, for what? So stupid. Here, here's the picture I want to paint for environmentalists. And I'd love it if we could. I, I wish I could draw. <laughs> I'd love to make a cartoon out of this. If anyone's good at drawing, then take this vision and make it your own. This is what I this is what I liken it to. We live in a house. It's oh, it's beautiful. Um, quaint, spotless, white picket fence, just painted, bright, crisp, clear, just perfectly manicured lawn and landscaping. It's got a beautiful porch, new windows, brick chimney, just spotless, absolutely spotless. It looks like the house from Up, movie Up, right? You know, just beautiful, quaint cottage. Just, it's so good. Meanwhile, next door, a total dump. It, it's like a, it's like one of the abandoned houses out of Detroit, right? It's a safety hazard. It's falling down. The grass hasn't been mowed in 20 years. The fence is in shambles. I mean, they're still living in there, so they're running on generator power. So there's this thick, or just coal. They're just running on straight coal. So there's a thick black plume of smoke over this decrepit travesty of a should-be-condemned home. And you see those side by side, right? Our home, perfectly spotless in every way. And then this condemned crack house next door. And then some government representative 
is writing us a ticket because there's a blade of grass that's longer than the government-authorized grass length. And we're standing outside our perfectly just you know manicured lawn, except for that one blade of grass. And we're on our side of our beautiful white picket fence. And this government official is writing us a ticket. Meanwhile, we got these people next door, and everything's a disaster. And I just like it's like stop nitpicking us. Why are we the problem? Why? Why is the most technologically advanced country in the world the country that invents the technologies that make for a cleaner planet? Why are we the bad guys? And why do you want to slow our economy down to the point where we can't make these technological advancements anymore? Which will be the savior for not only the planet, which is of lesser concern, but the people on the planet. Stop coming after us. We're not the bad guys. It's frustrating. 1-888-933-93. If anyone wants to draw that, uh, it's, it's yours. Take it. Make it into something. Spread the word far and wide. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Again, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. One more hour coming up next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on the Facebook. Final thought here on the county clerk in Kentucky, and then I want to read a letter. Um. The county clerk who refuses to issue uh, marriage licenses to gay couples. Thought more about it. Um, Seeked counsel, friends, got advice. And my conclusion is that this woman, who is an employee of the state, who's acting as an arm of the government, has to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. That is the law. Which means if as a Christian she doesn't feel that it's right morally to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, she should resign. That's what I would do. Easy for me to say, right? It's hard. It's hard to do that. And, and she, she can resign and call it persecution. <laughs> and if so, good. Be glad and rejoice in it. But state employees can't pick and choose the laws that they want to enforce. This county clerk was given no power to change the law on the fly. She should resign and then dedicate her time to convincing the state capitol to pass a law like they have in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina passed a law earlier in the year that says they anticipated this. They says if there's a county clerk who doesn't want to issue a same-sex marriage license, uh, you don't have to. And someone else in the county's clerk office will do it instead. or something. So it just eliminates... The problem. Um, I, I, th- I think that's the right course of action. Here's, here's another angle about why I think that's the right course. Because when the other side did what this woman's doing, I thought it was wrong. 
What do you mean? Two examples. Back in 2004, a bunch of elected officials across California, Gavin Newsom leading the charge, who's now the, uh, what are they called? Not the second governor. What do they call it? Not interim governor. Uh, not governor. What the, what the heck is the name? The, uh, oh, come on. Now, now I'm annoyed. Yell it louder. Yell it louder into the radio. Gavin Newsom is the lieutenant governor. Jeez Louise, sorry. So he's the lieutenant governor right now, but he was the mayor of San Francisco. So he led the charge on issuing same-sex marriage licenses, defying the law which at the time limited marriage between a man and a woman. So he and other county clerks took it upon themselves to break the law, and it was celebrated by many, but not by me. Because who are they to take the law into their own hands? Another example, remember Prop 8. California voter passed Prop defining marriage between a man and a woman. When that law was challenged, it is the job of the governor and the attorney general who works for the governor. By the way, our attorney general is running for U.S. Senate right now in Barbara Boxer's seat, uh, Kamala Harris. It is the governor's job to defend the will of the people in his state, even if he disagrees with the people. So it was the governor's job to defend Prop 8 in court, and he refused to do it. And Kamala Harris refused to do it. And that decision from those two was celebrated. They did not do their job. And people celebrated that. We didn't, of course. Because that's their job. Even if they disagree with the people, it's their job to act on behalf of the people as governor and attorney general. Today, county clerk in a small county in Kentucky wants to not fulfill her job responsibilities. Just like Gavin Newsom did not fulfill their job, his job responsibilities, just like county clerks in 2004 did not fulfill their job responsibilities, just like the governor and the attorney general did not fulfill their job responsibilities, but instead of her being celebrated, she's dragged through the mud and her entire life details are plastered across major newspaper headlines. Pitchforks aflame. And here's the truth. All three parties are wrong. In their action. They're just they're wrong. Now I think this woman is right. In her moral conviction. And I wouldn't issue that license either. Now not. But I would quit. That's my point. Now. I'm not even going to. We don't have time. To mention the governor and, and the mayors who refuse to enforce federal immigration law. And we don't have time to talk about a president who refuses to enforce all sorts of laws and make up others along the way. And goodness gracious, a former secretary of state who willfully breaks the law. Selective lawlessness going on in America will not end well. And I don't think we should be a party to it. There's other ways, and there's more specific ways to engage in civil disobedience. And really, civil disobedience in this case means resigning. And then fighting that law that you so righteously abhor. I think that's my take right now. But I don't want to end on that note. Can I, uh, can I share one last thing here? 
friend of mine, he's a pastor, his oldest son just started kindergarten. So a friend of his, uh, a friend of my friends, his kid also is just started kindergarten and he is freaking out. The dad is freaking out, right? <laughs> he's just like, he's freaking out about sending his kid into a cruel, cruel world <laughs> where kids are mean and they steal and they pull hair and they bite and it's an ugly scene in kindergartens across California. <laughs> and he's just worried about what's to come. I'm sure you've heard of the school um, with the boy who identifies as a girl who wears a wig and dresses like a girl and wants to change in the girl's locker room, right? And the 200 kids walked out of the school. Interesting times. So this dad, his oldest son, his firstborn, is just concerned about, about this world that he's ushering his son out into. So he asked my pastor friend what he would say to his five-year-old son before going off to kindergarten. So my buddy wrote a letter. Can I read it real quick? I think it's good. Uh, trigger warning. Trigger warning. This letter has the word, has the J word in it. The J word. So. Jesus. He's a pastor. Okay, so throw him a bone. He's allowed to use the J word. Okay. Here's what he wrote. Son. Buddy, I can't believe you are going to be in kindergarten. You are becoming such a big, strong, beautiful boy. You make me happy. You know, now that you're going to school every day and all day, you are going to learn all sorts of new things and hear things that you have not heard in our house. Why, you ask? See, when kids come from many different homes, they all learn and hear different things. Differences is what makes life really fun. You know how you and your brother like different superheroes and colors and games? Differences are okay. It's what makes each of us feel special. But differences can also be hard sometimes. You know how sometimes mommy says you can go play and then daddy says no? And those are hard differences. Ones we don't always like. Now one thing that, that some people feel different about is marriage. You know how mommy and daddy are married and mommy's a girl and daddy's a boy? Well, sometimes people that are both boys and both girls want to get married. Why, you ask? You know, buddy, to be honest, I don't know. There are some things even daddies and mommies don't know. But you know how we, we pray to Jesus and, and we share what we, we need prayer for? Well, Jesus loves us all so much. But there are some things that people and Jesus feel different about. Like Jesus tells us in the Bible that, that marriage is for boys and girls. And the hard thing is sometimes people don't like hearing that. So they get married anyway. But when people do that, you know what Jesus tells us our job is? Our job is to be super nice to people. Always. 
See, the Bible says that our job is to be nice to people who see things differently than we do. Sometimes people are different than us, and that's okay. Jesus says he loves them and us so much that we get to be nice. So, I want to make a fun deal with you. Every time you hear something different than what you hear at home, I want you to come tell daddy. And we will get an ice cream and go chat about it. Deal? I love you. Dad. It is a lost world. It is an upside down world. My wife sometimes questions if we should bring people into this crazy world. And I say, yes, we must. We must. Because as lost and as upside down it is as it is, it doesn't mean that we can't still and always be a light. And raise people to do a better job than perhaps we've done. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Signer Crusaders, I want to take a second here. Talking about Peter Schramm, professor, uh, great conservative thinker. Before he was born, his dad was forced to work in a munitions factory for the Nazis. And the Allies dropped leaflets warning that a bombing was imminent. And the Nazis demanded that everyone show up for work anyway. Peter's dad did not. So the Nazis came to his home, pulled him outside, got him on knee, got, got him on his knees, ready to shoot him in the back of the head when the American bombers flew overhead. The bombs hit the factories, and everyone inside was killed. Peter's dad survived. Ten years later, after the war, he was in Hungary. Uh, Hungary was in pretty bad shape. A lot of fighting still going on. A grenade landed right at Peter's dad's feet, but did not go off. Okay, he said. <laughs> He's like, that's, that's, that's the last straw. Uh, so dad told his son to pack up his bags. We're out of here. And Peter said, where are we moving, Dad? We're going to America. Why America? Because, son, we were born Americans. But we're in the wrong place. Fifty years later, Peter said, I've spent the better part of the last 50 years working to more fully understand these words. 
dad, in his way, was saying that he understood America to be both a place and an idea at the same time. Fundamentally, it's a place that would embrace us if we could prove that we shared in the idea and we meant to prove it. So Peter was a professor. So in the classroom, he would always say America invented freedom. How many college classrooms do you think the professors say that? America invented freedom. Now, here's the deal. Peter spoke out against illegal immigration. But you know what he did more than that? He spoke to native-born Americans. He spoke to the native-born Americans who think that being born here doesn't come with obligation. The native-born Americans who don't appreciate what we have and who don't understand how the rest of the world works and what it would mean for the rest of the world if we lost ourselves. And this is what he said, and this is challenging, this is convicting perhaps. Maybe you don't want to hear this. I know our country doesn't want to hear it, but I think our country needs to hear it. He said, you can't expect immigrants to buy into the American idea if the people living here have no idea what the American idea is. He said, if we, there's a quote, he said, if we no longer understand or believe in that which makes us Americans, then there's nothing substantive to assimilate into, right? We've become many and diverse people who share a common place rather than e pluribus unum, out of many one. So Peter went on to say, he said, he said you know, it's easy to say, uh, you know, immigrant, you're not assimilating. But assimilating to what? <laughs> what are they supposed to assimilate to if we don't even know? We're on our way to losing our freedoms. We invented it and we're on our way to losing it. That's not my perspective. That's it. This is a gentleman who, who, who knows, who's seen the perspectives. And he said, we're on our way to losing it, not because there's so many immigrants unwilling to become Americans, but because there are so many natives unwilling to teach them or show them who are unwilling to live what it means and create that, what's the word, uh, the model. So I, I just I share it today because I, I want to be sure that we take a two-pronged approach to immigration. Two prongs. And we can do both at the same time. One, strong, clear borders. You're with me. Strong, clear. As, as Donald Trump would say, big, beautiful, powerful wall. I'm with you. I'm with you, right? Strong borders and a rational immigration system where immigrants can come and assimilate into America in a proper level, whatever that is. We can have that conversation. That's step one. We get that. We're good. Here's two. This is what I want to push everyone else on. And not you. You get it. Everyone else in your circle. I want a stronger effort to have native-born Americans understand what it means to be American. And this, in many ways, is a harder thing to accomplish. But it's necessary. Because it's easy to complain about the 11 million illegal immigrants who are not assimilating. But there's 330 Americans who I think have some assimilating to do as well. Assimilating around our common shared values. What does that mean, common shared values? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think they, I, we're trying to figure it out. 
right? That's what we're exploring here. That's what we explore here every day. What are those values? What are those things that are written on our heart? What are those things we know that are true? What are those things that we've strayed from? What are those things that Peter's dad in Hungary said, we, I have these things, but we're in the wrong place. We got to go to the place where other people have these things. That's what we're trying to discover. A lot of people say immigrants are taking our country from us. We can have that conversation. But I think we're letting it go from the inside too. And that's even scarier to me. And that's why I'm so grateful you're here. So grateful because while other people are loosening their grip, it's up to us to pick up the slack. And while we're doing that, convince others to hold tight again. Because as Peter said, and he knows, America invented Don't let go. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Hey, Slater. I want to uh, play before we get started here. This is a clip from Colin Quinn's. Uh, this is an HBO? No, Netflix. Netflix series. Uh, it's called Unconstitutional. Um, it's just a quick little clip here. It's funny. Play. But if you even mention ethnicity, people feel a little bit, ten- your stomach feels tense. If you even mention someone's ethnicity, everyone's like, wow, wow. If I told you a true story, this Mexican guy came up to me, ho, whoa. Why does this guy have to be Mexican in your true story? I don't understand. You know, you have to speak in the most idealized, pasteurized, homogenized, colorblind at all. You know, you feel, if you notice, you're like, this guy comes up to me, could have been Mexican. I don't know. I don't care. I shouldn't have been a Central American, Hispanic, Latino. It was a man, all right? Wait a minute. I was sexist. I don't know if it was a man. Could have been a woman. Could have been LGBT. I don't know. I mean, it was a a life form came up to me. You know what? Hold on. I'd like to uh, start the story by apologizing for, obviously, I'm coming from a place of Western entitled, unconscious, paternalistic, fear of the other and, um, you know, non-heteronormative, gender-specific. I'd like to start by saying that this apology has been a learning experience for me and a, you know, a teachable moment. And I think I'm going to do some soul searching and hopefully down the line, I can start a nonprofit for other people that are telling stories, you know. Sure, you applaud, but half the country, when you tell that apology, groveling, they're like, now you're starting to understand. <laughs> so, not even kidding. Yesterday, 
had a conversation with someone who started off the story with she went like this. She had she said, "Oh yeah," she was telling a funny story, a funny joke. She goes, "Oh, two of my friends, uh, they're married, and they went on vacation to to Nashville. Uh, oh, oh, a heterosexual couple, hetero heterosexual marriage, and they went to Nashville the other day." And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> like I I I assumed that's." But I've never heard that hetero. I've never heard heterosexual marriage used defensively. Like you know, you know what I mean. Like I don't. Even, how do you even t- apply that? Like, like as like a qualifier in a normal conversation. That was the first time I've ever heard that. It was just yesterday. And then I heard the Colin Quinn <laughs> bees right there. Um, I've been meaning to share these stories. Can, can I share a couple stories here? We all know. I was like, like a couple weeks ago. Was it last week? Two weeks ago? Talked about how courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. Talked about the three Americans on that train in France and how when they started to attack the terrorist, there was a British businessman there at 50 years old whose instinct was to hide and wait to die. But when he saw the Americans run and jump on the terrorist, he decided to go run, jump, and help out as well. Courage is contagious. By the way, uh, did you see the one of those uh, Americans is going to be on, the da- on Dancing with the Stars? And funny, he's a couple days ago. I don't know what his profession was before this, but he was on vacation in Paris, and now he's on Dancing with the Stars. So <laughs> pretty funny. Um, so courage was contagious. That was our our argument a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago. Serving is contagious too. Most everything is contagious, actually. Most everything. You are who you surround yourself with. Apathy. Is contagious. Misery is contagious. Joy and happiness are contagious. So it, knowing that, it's funny when I think of that. Okay, when I say joy and misery are contagious, what's the first thing you think of? I want to see if it's the same thing I think of. When I say joy and misery are contagious, the first thing I think of is, oh, I better surround myself with people who are happy, right? Good people who are in a good mood, and you know all that stuff. And that's true. But I think what's even more important is who we are. And so not not who we surround ourselves with, but who we are. Do we you know are, are we gonna be a person of joy and happiness? It's up to us to decide which virus we want to spread. Lucas Hobbs made up his mind. Lucas lives in Minnesota, battling brain cancer right now. He's twelve. When he was diagnosed with cancer a while back, his church brought him food. And not just one time. You know, it wasn't an obligation. It was the church's act of service. And they continually made food for Lucas and their entire family for months. I love that. You know, making food for people in different times of life, that, that's always been a thing. But now they have these... these uh, Websites and systems where you pick a day like of the month that you're going to be the person to make food for and just makes it for an organized, loving, or organized system of love. So this church has been doing this for, for Lucas for a couple months. This virus of service and this virus of love infected Lucas. 
So when he was approached with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, it changed his wish. I don't know if you're 12, Make-A-Wish comes to you. At Disneyland, sure. Meet a WWE superstar. Now, he asked his parents if he could use his Make-A-Wish to help others. Now, imagine the parents. You're, you're the parent of this young man, 12 years old. He has a chance to do whatever he wants. He says, I want to use my wish to help others. It's pretty good. So, he took over a food truck. And they drove around town serving people for free. He got the idea of service, of course, from his church. And he got the idea of a food truck because the church was giving him food. And he just watched the movie Chef. I've never seen it, but I've seen previews, right? It's about a father and son who operate a food truck. So he got inspired by that. So Make-A-Wish teamed up with the Minnesota Food Truck Association. And a bunch of food trucks all traveled together to five different locations around town. You ready? A homeless shelter, a senior center, a church, and the police department. And handed out free food. <laughs> Isn't that great? They went to a, they go, that's, that's so great. A homeless shelter, a senior center, a church, and a police department. You're thinking Slater, hold on, wait, you said five places, those are four. They went to five. Where do you think the fifth place was? Think about Lucas. Right? Think about the young man Lucas is. Maybe put yourself in his shoes. You come up with this great idea. You're going to go serve others with this food truck. You're going to drive to these different places and give people free food. Put a smile on their face, right? So where are the five places you would go? <laughs> I don't even know if I'm a good enough person to think of these places. A homeless shelter, a senior center, a church. And the police department, where, where's the fifth place you would go if you were Lucas? The fifth place was the children's hospital where he lived for almost a year. He said, I don't know what to say, but it makes me feel really, really happy for what I'm doing. Come on, how about this young warrior? How about this guy? He fought this big battle, brain cancer, and now he's paying it forward. Well done, Hobbs family. Well done. I got a minute here. Can I share one more story here? A similar story paying it forward. I like this one too. Matthew Flores, Utah, loves to read. Loves it. Can't stop reading. Thing is, he doesn't have any books. So mostly he reads the newspaper and any junk mail that comes to the house. And he reads, he, reads, he reads all the advertisements. He reads every word on every page of anything that comes to his home. He just doesn't have any books. So one day, a couple weeks ago, the mailman came to his apartment. You know apartments have the, uh, the mailboxes all in one place. So Matthew walks around the corner. And I just, I don't know if this is how it went down, but I imagine it like this. I imagine little Matthew tugging on the pant leg of the mailman. <laughs> I'm sure it didn't happen like that, but I like that. I like that image. Excuse me, Mr. Mailman, sir. But he did say, Mr. Mailman, do you have any junk mail I can have? Ron, Ron was the mailman. He says, why do you want junk mail? And he says, so I can have something to read. 
Ron says, do you have any books? No, I don't have any books. Why don't you go to the library? I can't afford a bus pass. So Ron said, hang on a second. Took out his phone, snapped a picture of little Matthew. He went home and he put this picture on Facebook just for a few of his friends. That's it. And he asked if any, any of his friends had any books to read. And he thought, I'll get 10 books. Post went all over Facebook. Hundreds of books came to this small town post office. Good, high quality books. Hundreds of books from around the world. Books from India. Books from England. All across America. Came for little Matthew. So Ron came back the next week with a handful of books and said, Matthew, these are for you. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. Too many books. Too many books for a young Matthew to read. So what are they going to do? They're going to have a book drive. Free books for anyone who wants them in the apartment complex. Once again, paying it forward. Well done, Mr. Mailman. Well done for recognizing that we have a 12-year-old who more than watching TV or more than playing video games loves to read. And thank you for doing something slightly above and beyond to encourage him in that. And then how about these young people wanting to pay it forward, saying, you know what, this is too much for me. I, I don't need this. And saying, I'm going I'm to take this gift that you give me, I'm going to give it to someone else. How good is that? In such a selfish culture, such a uh, culture that thinks about me all the time. How about these young men setting a different standard? Good stuff. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I have to share this story. This, it's uh, you know early September, still probably my favorite story of the month. I think it's so good. So one of my uh, favorite quotes is "Walk slowly through people." Walk slowly through people. Anne Malam, Philadelphia, maybe thirty years old. Every morning. At 5.30 in the morning, she would go for a morning run. And every morning, she would run past the same homeless people. Think about that. It's early. It's dark. Run down a pretty dangerous street. See the same homeless people every single day sleeping on the sidewalk. And she'd run by them and just go on with the rest of her day. And she would do that for weeks. And then one day, she ran by them and she stopped. And she looked behind her and she saw people sleeping on the sidewalk. And she said to herself, what am I doing? I'm running by these people for a reason. Literally the next day, she was supposed to start her dream job. She quit it and started a running club for the homeless. What? <laughs> what are you doing? What? That doesn't even make any sense. A running club for the homeless. There's an amazing picture of her with I don't know, maybe 20 big homeless guys, big, tall homeless guys. And then this little girl 
and their arms over each other's shoulders in a circle. They're doing a little pre-run pep talk, and they go take, take off running. This group is called Back on My Feet. Now, it's a running club and a job training program, but the rule is you have to commit to running every morning, or uh, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, optional Saturday long runs, uh, and you have to do that for a while before you're allowed in the job training group. And the purpose of that is to prove dedication. Train your dedication and give the people doing it a sense of purpose, some self-confidence, and give people a natural runner's high to replace whatever addiction is behind them. Started this group so far a couple years. Um, it's been eight years. 5,200 homeless people have been reached to, have been reached. Uh, 1,300 have independent housing on their own, and 1,900 are employed. So think about that. 1,900 people times a year's worth of welfare and public subsidies. All because of a running club. I want to I want to play this clip. This gentleman, uh, drug addict, his name's James, pushed his family away. He's been on the streets for years. Join the running club. <laughs> it's helped me to identify who I am. I'm James. Not James the drug addict. Not James the mess up. But James the new person. James the person that's willing to do anything to keep his life going right. <laughs> Come on, how about that girl? I love there's a scene at the end where James, 40 years old, 40 year old black man, homeless a year ago, finishing a local 5K, runs across the finish line, then runs right over to Ann and gives him a gives her a big hug. Look at what's possible when you invest in people. When you see people as humans with potential and not liabilities to manage at the government views people. Ann ran by ran, literally ran quickly past these people and then one day she stopped and decided to walk slowly through and look at how lives have changed mike slater show spread the word you're listening to mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network